0: Now, the truth is, everybody loves a superhero. Now, I'm a big sucker. I watched Captain America last night, and I was like, I I could have easily just started over again. I mean, I saw it, and I could have just gone back. So instead, I watched all the featurettes, you know what I'm talking about, how they did everything. It was fascinating to me. I am fascinated by superheroes, but I'm more fascinated. As much as I enjoy seeing movies like that and getting caught up in that, because there is something innate. There's something inside of us that's drawn towards that which is bigger than life. We all like to think that there's somebody with superpowers and super abilities that can come in and sort of save the day and rescue everything. And as awesome as that is, and as drawn to that as it's something innate in us, to me, it's amazing that God doesn't use that model to do what he does. What God does is take you and me. He takes that which is ordinary, touches it, anoints it, empowers it, and makes it extraordinary. Now, I was talking about, I saw this little girl yesterday. We went to the to a dance recital. My daughter's in the fifth grade, and so she there was a dance recital over at Hardin-Simmons, and we're sitting there with hundreds of other parents, you know, and it's like iPhone-ville and cameras, and it's just cr- pure parent mayhem, you know. It's as much for the parents as it is for anything. And we're watching the kids do their thing, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing and enjoyable. and And I'm enjoying it. It's good. I, I like what they're doing. But then they did this one number where there was a whole bunch of, I mean, like 30 kids out on the stage doing this musical number. And on the end of the stage... Out comes this girl on one crutch with cerebral palsy. And I watched her hobble out. And at first I thought, well, maybe she had a, an injury or something. And they were letting her dance anyway. She had, and I realized she had cerebral palsy and her whole body was affected. And as all these kids did their moves, you know, with precision and practice, and they'd worked so hard to put on this little production, I watched her, and all she, the best she could do was, was kind of hobble, and she would try to bob with the music, and, and she'd look around, and she'd look to see what they were doing. And, and I thought, first of all, how amazing is it that this little organization allowed this little girl to do this and be a part? Second of all, how amazing are the parents who have encouraged her and said, honey, you can do it. You can do it. You can do what the rest of those kids do. I mean, there was a no limits mentality. And I sat there, and I don't know if I'm the only one who was crying like a baby. And I'm glad the lights were out because there were a lot of daddies sitting around there talking about hunting deer and whatnot. I was over here in conversation, I'm like, oh, my gosh. But I mean, tears stream down my face as I watch this little girl defy culture. Because our culture is so caught up in what things look like on the surface. You got to look like a hero. I mean, Thor, he's a stud. I mean, blonde hair, beard, big muscles. I mean, all these superheroes have something about them that, that attracts us, they're attractive. Even in their appearance and and what they can do, and yet I saw this this little girl, probably about eleven years old. And of course, my mind—I'm a systemic thinker, so in my mind, I'm going. Can I, I'm thinking through what what has her life been like. You know, has she taken ridicule from the kids at school? And I'm not going to lie; it was awkward to watch her because it, it defied. Protocol. It defied what's proper and what, what we deem appropriate. Because it was awkward and it, it, I, I don't know if anyone else felt that tension. I have a feeling I did. I wasn't looking around. But I sat there and I thought, what? Because I was thinking about today and I thought, now there's a hero. There's somebody who, in spite of what the culture would deem as no good, as limitations, she's like, I don't care. And I was like, I wanted, I didn't, but I wanted to stand up when it was over with and cheer for her. That would have been awkward. (laughs) So I didn't, but oh, did I cheer in my heart. And I was wrecked. That's why when I was talking about it a minute ago, it just got all over me. Because in our culture, we're looking for the superheroes, the superstars, the athletes that can that can wow us and overcome and blow our minds. And we watched the World Series and we saw some some kind of heroes emerge, freeze from the Cardinals and others who, who men in the last moment, hit ones out of the center field fence and, you know, wins the game, you know, game six of seven. And it's like, oh, my gosh, it was just a heroic moment. And and as awesome as that is, we'll forget about that shortly. I'm talking about everyday heroes. I was driving was a number of years ago, and I was driving from Dallas back to Lubbock. Lubbock was my hometown, and it was late at night, and I'm driving through. I had come through Roscoe and headed towards Snyder, so I was somewhere in the Snyder area, headed back towards Lubbock, headed towards the north, uh, northy, northwest, And I see some lights way up in the distance. You know how it is when you're really tired and it's really late at night and you're just sort of just in a zone. And I'm just driving on the highway. There's hardly any cars at all. And it was a cold night. And it was like a Friday or Saturday night. I remember that. And I remember seeing way off in the distance headlights. But it looked like a car was doing something abnormal. I mean, it didn't look right. Something was off. And it took me a minute. It took a minute to register. But I was witnessing a car wreck way down the road. An accident. And I was like, oh, no. I mean, I just, man, the adrenaline just, I woke up instantly. If I was at all drowsy, it was gone in a moment. And as I pulled up, I was like the second car to stop. And off to the side of the road in a in a ditch. In fact, I drive by it often when I'm going back to Lubbock. And I always think about that moment and it takes me back. But in this ditch... There's a car that had gone through that culvert, come out of it, got airborne, flipped up on its, you know, flipped upside down, and landed on its top. And as I pulled up, it had just happened. The dust had not even settled yet. And I run, I, and then as I'm stopping, there's another car and a truck stop. I mean, it's just all happening all at the same time. It's just one of those moments. And I'd like to tell the story that I walked up and, with my sheer strength, ripped the door off the car and rescued the girl, but that isn't what happened at all. I ran up to the car, and hanging upside down was a girl that was pinned into the car. And there were broken beer bottles all over the place, and there was beer everywhere, just reeked of alcohol. And she was young. She, she looked like she might have been a college student or a high school A high school kid, and I don't mean that demeaning way, just that she was young. And I leaned down, I said, and I was like the second guy. And, of course, the car's making this noise, and there's water running out of the radiator. And, and then, of course, you flash back to all the movies you've seen where they blow up, you know. And so you're in that moment, and so you're in that moment. And as I'm there, and there's another guy and a trucker and a lady, and, and people are coming, and people are yelling, get away, get away. And I'm I'm like, I don't know what to do because my... My part of me wants to run away, and part of me is like, no, we can't leave this girl here. And so I'm kneeling down, and I reach through the broken window, and I touch her arm, and she's awake, but she's in shock. She's shaking. She's scared. She's crying. And she's saying, help me, help me, help me. And And somebody, this was before cell phones. This was, we didn't have anything like that. And and somebody says, somebody go get help, go get help, go get help. And I run, jump in my car, and I run down the road, and I find a house. And the people let me in the house. And old school, I had to dial the phone and call, and we got some help on its way. I got back to the wreckage. And, and I remember when I touched the girl's arm and I leaned, I said, are you okay, honey? Are you okay? And, and she, she was like, I, I think so. And she was just shaking and trembling. I, I said, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. There were people all around going, all right, all right, all right, all right. Don't touch her. Don't touch her. I just touched her arm and I said, "We're going to pray for you." And and when I came back, by that time it looked like a, emergency vehicles were on the way. I mean, it started to get be a crazy scene. And I walked back up to it, and by then there was a lot of people around. And I just grabbed people. I said, "Hey, you pray? Do you pray? Do you, hey anybody want to pray?" And a whole group of people just huddled up, and I just we held hands and we prayed over that little girl. We just held hands there. We prayed, just, God, please, Lord, please, spare life, God, please, Lord. And we prayed, and we prayed for the emergency people and everything involved. And, and then it just the scene just got crazier, and I just thought, well, I guess it's time to go. I need to get back on the road. I got to get home because they had it under control. And I remember getting in the car, and I was so wired on adrenaline. I mean, I, I, all the way back to Lubbock. And I didn't know anything. I didn't know how can I, how can I find out if she's okay? Because I didn't know who she was, and I didn't know where she was from. I didn't know if she was from Snyder or what. I thought I remembered a Texas Tech uh, sticker on her car. A couple of days later, I'm looking at the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, which is the the news local newspaper for Lubbock, and I see in there a car wreck that was reported, and it was that car wreck. And she had passed away that night. And I remember just being blown away. Like, oh, God. You know, when I was there, she was talking. She was alive. And she was. And all these people were praying and helping and all these heroes stopping. Not worrying about whether the car was going to blow up or just people there. When I think about heroic, that's the kind of things I think about. I think about people like you and people like me. Who get pressed into an extraordinary circumstance. And in that moment, we are called upon. To make a decision. And sometimes it's a decision that is so in the moment. It's not always a decision that, that you can just sit and think through. Because let me tell you something. Heroes are made in everyday life. And then when the moment comes, the decision was already made. Through years of training, years of dealing with situations, years of, of handling things, years of, of maybe even failures, but learned from that experience. And then when the moment comes, you're ready. And you don't worry about whether a car is going to blow up. You just don't think about it because you just do what needs to be done. There was a school teacher taught in Bowdoin College up in Maine, and a brilliant young man. And he taught these students, and he, year in, year out, gave his life for them, and he had some strong opinions about the politics of the government of America at the time because our president at the time began to see that our country was absolutely divided. And some things came down from our president and from our government that said we need to get control of the situation or we are literally going to have a union that is split down the middle. It already kind of was, but he this president decided we're going to have to take some some defined steps. One of the big issues at the time was slavery. And the president of the United States at the time had some strong opinions. And of course, in government, as things happen, those opinions in the university campus is a place where things get talked about a lot and hashed out. And this particular professor of rhetoric, you see his picture on the screen. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who, by the way, had never had any thoughts about being in a war, never had any thoughts about being a hero of any kind. He was just a professor in a college, a literary professor. Wasn't particularly outstanding in any way. He was you and me. He was a normal person. The call came and the north began to assemble, and the south began to assemble, particularly in Virginia where the line was drawn at the time, and, and, and as things begin to heat up, he volunteered. He and his brother Thomas volunteered to fight for the north because they felt like it was a just cause. And he even had the thought and the mentality, and he even said this once that, He said, I do not question the integrity of the men of the South, but I do question this. I question the morality. Of one group of people who would fight for their freedom and yet enslave an entire culture of people. He said that I question. And so he signed up as many did in a volunteer army. Not drafted, he went voluntarily, he and his brother. And he was immediately brought into the army and and immediately employed, and he fought many battles, and and it was a horrible, terrible scene. Did you know that in the Civil War, over six million people lost their lives? I want you to think about that for a second. Six million. When they talk about bloody battlefields, they mean literally bloody battlefields. We're not talking about a swamp like down in Florida. We're talking about what is swamp like, but it was blood running on the ground. The bodies of men blown to bits and bayoneted and shot up all over these fields. And the battle continued to rage on and heat up and heat up and and and. And he got promoted to colonel and, and actually began to 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 gain some some notoriety as as a as a tactician, a thinker. He was very smart. He didn't use his brawn so much as he used his brain. And after surviving some ferocious encounters and clashes, and surviving through night after night, literally laying in piles of bodies of his friends and his men that had died, and protecting himself. It came to a point where he was assigned to the very edge, what they call the flank of the war. And and it was a line that, that actually ended up in the area of Gettysburg. And he was going to, his role was to hold down that line, hold down that edge. And at that point, the South was gaining momentum. And the South had actually, the the momentum had swung, and the South was actually gaining momentum. And it was a possibility, a strong possibility, that the South was going to win the war. And if the South could get by Chamberlain and his troop, the 20th Maine, if the South could get by them, they would literally be able to probably take control and they would have literally won the war. Folks, we would not be sitting here today. Because you need to understand, had that gone the other way, we would have remained probably three small, not very powerful nations. You would have had Texas in the South, the Southern Territory, and then the North, and we would have been separate nations. We wouldn't be here today, not like this. And so the battle raged on, and and five times the South attacked that flank because General Lee in the South knew that if they could get that flank and take and break that line and get in behind them, they could, they could literally swing that thing. And, and literally it would have meant the, the beginning of the end of that war and the South would have won. Chamberlain's men had been whittled down from 400. They just had been decimated. In fact, he called right at the last moment as he's looking over the wall. Remember, remember Stonewall Jackson and all of them. them? They built a wall there, and he's looking over the wall. Out at, and five times they were attacked and five times they drove him back. By the last attack, bloody attack, he'd lost half of his men. And he called for an accounting of their munitions. How much ammo do we have? They said, we've got about two bullets for each guy. That's what they were down. Basically, they had nothing. And his men came up around him. And his own brother, Thomas, who was his lieutenant, came up to him and said, all right, we've got to make a decision. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, Josh? What are you going to do? And it looked like. It looked like the the Alabama contingency, they were they were assembling again for a sixth attack. And this time, this time, they did not see how they could actually stand it. I mean, it was going to be too much for them. And so as they're assembling, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is required to make a decision. Someone say one decision. Sometimes you are one decision away from disaster or one decision away from being a hero. You can be a zero or a hero, and sometimes it comes down to one moment in time and one decision. And in that moment, he stands up on the wall and he looks around and surveys the situation. And in that moment, and he just had a few moments to think about it as they were assembling for their sixth attack. And he literally thinks to himself, would it be better to run, to retreat? And he's thinking down the line, what would the cost be to retreat versus the cost to stand and fight? He knew and he thought it would be the same. We're going to be defeated either way. So we will stand and we will fight. And he yells to his brother, tell the men to fix bayonets. And his brother and his men are thinking, bad idea. We're already beat down. We're already defeated. There is no way. There's four times as many of them as there are of us. They will overrun us in a moment. And when there is no way we could last. Thomas says, make a decision. He goes, fix bayonets. Fix bayonets. They call down the line and the men fix their bayonets. At that moment, the south begins their charge. Joshua, Lawrence Chamberlain, jumps up on the wall. And he says, he takes his sword out. Now, you got to understand something. This was in the face of certain death. And we're talking about a rhetoric professor from Maine. We're not talking about somebody who was trained for war. We're not talking about somebody who went through extensive training and and, and spent a lifetime preparing for this moment. We're talking about a man who read books. And he stands on a wall, he draws his sword, and he yells, Charge! 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 And with a rebel yell they run over the wall just those few men and within 10 minutes they round up 400 troops they surround they surround those southerners Alabama they surround them and they literally when they stepped up over the wall with their bayonets, Lee's men and, and the, those of the South thought they must have gotten reinforcements that we didn't know about. there's no way they would have come over that wall because they knew they had them. So they they must have gotten reinforcements and we didn't see it. They come over the wall and the men drop, the men of the south drop their loaded weapons and begin to run. And we see a rhetoric professor, an ordinary man, become a hero in a moment because of one decision. Because of one decision. One decision made the difference. I saw a little girl walk out on a stage in front of hundreds of people making a decision. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to dance. I'm going to express who I am. I'm going to be me. I saw a whole group of people huddle up around a car that was laying in a ditch with a dying college student from Texas Tech University. Pray. Go to war. Go to battle for her soul. Go to battle for her life. One decision. You need to understand something. Alan talked about what Dr. Stephen Mansfield shared with us a few weeks ago about what a hero is. A hero is... One who makes a way. One who shows something is possible in the face of what looks to be impossible. Heroes open doors. Heroes show us that it's possible. Now, if Spider-Man scales a wall, I'm thinking that's cool. He's got powers. He got bit by some super spider. I don't know how that works, but I know I can't do that. That, But let me tell you something. If a little girl can walk out on a stage in front of hundreds of people and not care about what anybody thinks, that tells me I can do it too. Why am I worried about what people think? Why am I so concerned when a, a fifth or sixth grader, who in the face of mock and ridicule, creates an awkward moment for everybody, but in one decision it goes from awkward to heroic, I'm like, wow. The Bible, the word of God is full of ordinary people who God touched in an extraordinary way. Listen, when we read the Bible, it's so easy to look at them and go, oh, but they had this and oh, but that circumstance or oh, but God did this. And but listen, you need to understand about every person in the Bible. They were just people. Just like you and me. Not superheroes. They didn't drink the serum. They didn't get the shots. They didn't get put into a tube and all of a sudden, you know, they didn't get acid poured on them and it somehow made them superheroes. All they were were people who many times were as afraid as you are. Faithless as anyone else. And yet in a moment of time made one decision to say, yes, God. I'll do it. Yes. Okay. Okay. Sometimes the most powerful prayer you can utter is, yes, Lord. Okay. All right. Okay. I'll be the one. I'll be the one. Let me tell you what's heroic. It's when a father will grab his family and say, we're going to spend some, we're going to pray. And the family goes, whatever. We've never done it before. No, we're going to now. Awkward. We're going to do it now. There are everyday heroes all around us, right here, right now. Some of your heroes, not because you did something, but because you didn't quit. That's heroic. Your kids are watching you, going, "Gosh, it's been hard on mom, but she didn't quit." That's been hard on my daddy. I don't know how anybody else could say it, but he didn't quit. He didn't give up. He didn't cave in. That's a hero. A kid. Out in a field with a slingshot and a guitar. Herding sheep. All he did in fact, he was the youngest of a whole line of brothers who were all superstar warriors they 're down they 're down fighting a war you got the army of the Philistines on one side of a valley and you 've got the army of God, the Israelites on another hill and they 're in a standoff and many times as happened in ancient wars when there was a standoff they would they would send out one champion from one side and a champion from the other because that would save on casualties. All right, you send out your big dog, we'll send out our big dog. They'll fight. Whoever wins, wins a war, and everybody goes home tonight. And there's only one casualty. So they're in a standoff, and King Saul, who was strapping, strong, big, bad dude, king of Israel, there's, he's, he's sitting in a tent watching across a valley, and their champion walks out, and his name is Goliath, and he's big. He's bad. He makes Schwarzenegger in his prime look like a wuss. Come on, somebody. Goliath's big. He walks out, and he is taunting the army of Israel. He is taunting them. He's yelling stuff at them. He's making fun of them. He's like, come on, send out. His shield is so big, he has to have one man actually carry the shield in front of him, his armor bearer. It's so big. And he's talking smack all day long. David shows up at the war because his dad said, hey, I need you to get some provision to your brothers. Go take them some stuff. He's like the water boy. He's coming in going to the game, going, all right, who needs something? So he goes to his brothers and makes a delivery. And he's like, whoa, what's going on here? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Because he hears him taunting the armies of God, defying the people of God. And David's like, whoa, whoa. David, you can imagine this kid shows up, and he's like, why isn't anybody doing something? Why don't somebody run a spear through this guy? Why don't somebody take him out? So David starts asking questions. What's the deal? What's going on? And, and somebody pops off and says, look, for anybody who, who, who will go take on Goliath and, and live and survive, they're going to get all kinds of stuff. And David's like, whoa, that's cool. So David's like, I'll do it. And he's actually talking about. His, he's got a big brother. Everybody's got an Eliab in their life. His big brother's going, "Oh, you're just here to see the blood and gore. What are you doing here, punk?" It's the big brother's dog and little brother. The big brother's not doing anything. He's sitting back there with everybody else, going, "Yeah, he's bad. Yeah, somebody should do something." And little David says, "Man, I'll do it." And his brother's like, "You're just, you're just all talk." Well, the word gets back to the king, to King Saul, that little David's. Down there talking smack. There's this little shepherd boy, little kid. Down here, he's mad about all this, and and Saul's like, bring him to me. He comes, he talks to Saul, and David's like, I'll go take him on. I don't know if Saul just out of pity or just I don't know. I don't know if he's wanting to see something, but he says, all right, go get him, go get him, boy. In fact, you can use my armor. Which he obviously wasn't wearing. So he hands, he puts his armor on this little shepherd boy. You gotta understand, this is a big, mighty warrior king handing a little boy, a little boy, his armor. And he puts it on and he's just like, ksh, ksh. I mean, there's no, he can't even move in it. And he takes the armor off. He goes, I, I can't do that. There's a whole other story there about you trying to wear somebody else's armor that was never made for you. It's a disaster when you're trying to be somebody you're not. So you wear somebody else's identity. It doesn't work. So David says, look, let me just fight him my way. His brother pops off, says, you're just here. He goes, look, isn't there, is there not a cause here? Is there not a cause? Let me tell you, the heroic thinking, heroic mentality is audacious. It's bold. It's courageous. It's not perfect. It doesn't have it all figured out. It just knows something needs to be done. You don't put that in a test tube and throw it in a centrifuge and separate it all out. You just go, somebody knows there's a cause and somebody's willing to do something. Little David was willing to do something. So he steps up and says, is there not a cause here? So he goes out to meet the giant, the Philistine. In 1 Samuel 17, you can read the story for yourself. I'll just tell you what happens. He goes out there and the Philistine sees him and says, what? Are you just like, what? he calls him a little dog. He said, what, you just, you're just a little punk. You're just a little kid. And he laughs at him and begins to mock him. And David says, this day the birds are going to feed on your carcass. And this is a little boy. Mind you, he's trained. I mean, he's been shooting a slingshot out. In the, I mean, he's killed stuff. I mean, he, he's not just a little little runt, apparently. I mean, he killed a lion. He's killed a bear. I mean, he needs to learn how to defend. He, he's got skills. But let me tell you what he really has. He has the anointing of God on his life and the destiny of God. And God wasn't going to have his destiny thwarted by some, some big-mouthed giant. So David steps out there. They have a little confrontation, and the giant starts toward him. And you know what David does? He runs to the giant. See, a lot of us, when, when we're facing the big stuff, we just we cower. Oh, here it comes. But brace yourself. I'm about to take a hit. David just goes, I'm going this way. He picks up some stones, about five of them, and he gets them in his sling. And he, of course, he only needed one. He swings that sling, and he lets it go, and he embeds that rock right in the forehead of the giant. And the giant, stunned, falls over. Boom. Can you imagine the armies on both sides watching this happen? I always think about Eliab, the big brother, because I'm a big brother. He's probably going, lucky shot. He was always lucky. David, being more than a conqueror, he goes out there and he grabs Goliath's sword. This is a 12-year-old kid with a massive sword. And it probably took two hands, and he just takes a step back, lines it up real good, kind of like you'd be lining up a drive if you're a golfer. Right, Derek? And he takes that sword, and he cuts the head of the giant off. So he didn't just kill him. He really killed him. He, he killed him dead. That's more than a conqueror. But you know what David was? He was a kid who was a shepherd out in a field and saw that something needed to happen. And because he saw that something needed to happen and did it, one decision, say one decision, one decision can make all the difference. One decision can make all the difference. It changed everything. It changed everything. It put David on the map. And Samuel the prophet realized, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the next king. Oh, he's just a kid now, but boy, did he ever just prove himself. He's the one. Ordinary to extraordinary. Zero to hero because of one decision. Everybody here, it could be one decision that you make in your family, on your job, in your classroom, out on the field, it could be one decision you make that takes you from a zero to a hero. Can you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, we're thankful, Lord, that many have gone before us and shown us what is possible. Lord, we're not even talking about superheroes like we saw in the trailer of the Marvel comics and super strength and ordinary people that got some kind of injection and all of a sudden they were extraordinary or a lightning strike or whatever. We're just talking about real people. One decision changes everything. I pray for daddies here, Lord, right now that they would indeed be courageous they would be bold enough to make a decision, to pray with their kids, to pray with their wife, as awkward as it might feel, maybe have never done it before, but they would step up and in a bold moment do what needs to be done. For the employee that gets asked to do something unethical because that's what everybody else around them does. God, I pray for boldness. I pray for grace. I pray for the heroic to overcome and overwhelm them. They would find themselves not caving in to the expectations of menial people. But, Father, they would stand up and do the right thing because it's the right thing. And because they are energized by the Holy Spirit, energized by truth of your word. And in that, they will stand. I pray for students who are being pressured day in and day out. pressured to perform, pressured to be popular, pressured to go all the way, pressured to party, pressured in so many ways. And I pray for boldness. I pray for heroic faith. That will stand up and not preach a sermon but simply take a stand. And having taken a stand, they are preaching a sermon with their life. Give them boldness. Give them courage. Every head bowed, every eye closed, there's a hero in every one of us. And you know what? More than likely, in life, you'll have many opportunities to exhibit heroic faith. And it may not always be epic in scope. It may not always be something that makes a good story it might just be the tiniest decision that you make to resist to say no to look the other way to drive the speed limit to not do what everybody else is doing it might just be those little everyday things one decision at a time we exhibit heroic faith every head bowed every eye closed just for a moment There was another hero in a garden who for three years exhibited what it looked like to be in the perfect relationship with God. His name was Jesus. And in this garden, in this moment, when he could have walked away from his destiny, he could have diverted it just because of the sheer agony and pain that he was suffering. And he even asked, Lord, if it's possible, can you let this cup pass for me? Is it po- if it's possible, if there's another way? And in that moment, he asked the question, if there's another way. And I'm so thankful that Jesus asked that question, because in that moment, he showed his humanity. And I'm so grateful for that. Had he not have ever shown his humanity, I couldn't relate to the Savior like that. He have just been a God. That I couldn't touch. But the fact that he asked that question, Lord, if it's possible, if there's another way. If there's any other way, can you let it pass from me? But he comes back with a heroic statement, a decision. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, there's the hero. One decision. Changed everything.